Amen. I want to, before we start, Alan, I do want to thank you for what you do in the sound booth, brother. I appreciate all that you do because if it's up to me, the only thing I know how to do is turn the light on. That is a good start. You've got to have the light on. That's part I go with that. Uh, I, I'm hoping that, Alan, you'll be working on the, on the uh, what do you call the sound effects and things, the smoke coming out here when I walk up. And, and uh, you know, a lot of churches do that nowadays. Uh, true story, I was reading this week and uh, some of the things that went on the last uh, Super Bowl Sunday at some of these places they call themselves churches. But anyway, uh, one particular church, and this guy put in a comment, he said, well, he said the church I went to didn't have the football thing going. Uh, but when I went in, when I went in that morning, he said, I was carrying my Bible. And the preacher said, you don't need that. We don't talk about that here. And he was serious. Isn't that sad? So I hope you brought your Bible tonight because I think it's important that we, we know, uh, first of all, that what I'm teaching is from God's Word. And my, my prayer would be that I would stay true to His Word. And I pray that anything that I would say uh, that is wrong, and I don't intend to be wrong, but I know that sometimes I would be, uh, I'd like for God to erase that from our minds. But anyway, we're continuing our study on uh, the divinity or the divine authorship of God's Word. Uh, we know, according to Timothy, when Paul wrote him, actually Paul wrote it, he was writing to Timothy, but he talked about God's Word being inspired. It is God-breathed. And certainly we know that any book can claim a lot of things, okay? And so that's a claim that Paul makes in uh, his letter to Timothy. So we're going beyond that, and we're, we're looking at internal evidence now as we just look through the Word of God, and hopefully as we look through, we can conclude one thing. God did indeed inspire this Word. In fact, for it to be like it is and to work together, it had to be inspired by God. Let's go back to our text verse. We've got two for the last few weeks. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 7. Okay, uh, John 5:39. Anybody got that? Thank you, Phyllis. Now, Dan, you read from Hebrews 10:7, uh, and of course, quoting from uh, the Old Testament about Jesus. I come in the volume of the book. It is written of me. And in John 5:39, Phyllis, you read that, and Christ is speaking there, and he talks about the scriptures, and he said, "They uh, are which testify of me." So it's interesting. The, the Bible says the Bible is about who? It's about Jesus. And of course, when Christ says search the scriptures, what scriptures was he talking about? The Old Testament. I hope by now we've done that several times that you got that. And why was he, how do we know he was referring to the Old Testament? That's all there was, exactly. So he says, search the scriptures, they speak of me. And, and I find that kind of interesting because if you're like me, especially early on as a Christian, if I wanted to learn about Jesus, I went to the New Testament. Doesn't mean you don't do that, and we should. But there's enough in the Old Testament that speaks about Jesus Christ. So the scriptures he refers to uh, weren't the four Gospels, because uh, they weren't written then. Uh, they were talking about uh, the Old Testament. 
Now, we also mentioned early on in this particular part of our study is that certainly every event that was given out or talked about in the Old Testament, was it an actual event? Yes. I mean, did the children of Israel, were they slaves in Egypt for about 400 years? Yes, okay. Uh, was there a, uh, an exodus out of Egypt? Sure. Took about 40 years. That actually happened. So these events are real. Uh, but yet, a lot of the things that would happen in the Old Testament were prefigures or typical of what was going to happen in the New Testament. So they were prefiguration. But I'll also understand a lot of what went on in the Old Testament uh, prefigured the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we find all kinds of things in the Old Testament. We find pictorial representation. Uh, also, uh, we see quite a few specific prophecies about Jesus Christ. And who else could they fit? No one. They're specific for him. And, of course, when the fullness of time came, uh, God sent his son. So, and by the way, no matter where we're reading now, we know that even the New Testament inspired of God. Uh, Peter talks about Paul's epistles, uh, his letters that he wrote being inspired, uh, being important. But at any rate, all the Word of God is inspired. And as we're reading through the Word of God, whether it's the old or new, we need to be looking for Jesus, okay? Or at least our signs or our types of Christ in the Word of God. That doesn't mean that everything's a type of Christ, but there are so many things that are. We talked about the Pentateuch, the first five uh, books, the books of Moses. Instead, we see Exodus and Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, as well as Genesis. Uh, and again, uh, probably not our favorite reading is the uh, different offerings that were uh, prescribed in Leviticus, the different festivals, the different holy days. And again, they were actual things that God required of them during that period. But all of that pointed to the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And of course, every year they uh, they did Passover and uh, sacrificed a Passover lamb. But what happened to all that when Jesus died? Say it again. He was no longer needed, okay? He fulfilled all of those types. We talked about how the Apostle Paul in the book of Romans as well as Corinthians in his letter to them, he talks about how the word of God of the Old Testament is beneficial for admonition. It's also a warning for us as we look at what God did because of their disobedience during the journey out of Egypt to the promised land. We looked at Genesis a week or two ago and the work of, the, of creation, how God moved upon uh, chaos and the darkness of this world. He, he spoke light, so we, we, we understood that that's certainly a type of what God does for us. We were in the dark without Christ. Christ began to work in our lives with the Holy Spirit, and now we're made alive. We're made new in the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the power of God prefigured uh, in Christ in the Old Testament. We talked also about when Adam and Eve sinned, and we, they, they knew they did, they hid from God. So what did God do for them? Covered them for what reason? They were naked and their sin was showing. And so God made coats, or not didn't make him, he killed an animal and provided coats to cover that sin because of their sin. So we talked about that. And of course, Jesus Christ is the one who, who shed his blood for our sin. We talked about Noah's Ark. And think about that. Uh, and we know very well about that. Um, if, if you were in the world that day and you're looking for a way out of safety, what was plan B? <laughs> plan A, I think that's what it was. 
There was no other way. It's the only way to say he was the ark. And who's the only way today? Jesus Christ. So even the ark, an actual event, an actual, I don't, I don't like to use the word boat, but it was a big boat, uh, certainly that Noah built, and yet it typified Jesus Christ. We also looked at, uh, when God delivered Israel from Egypt, and again, uh, that corresponds with the history of the church. Uh, you know, Moses led them out of bondage, uh, but my friend, it was a long journey. Now, it was their own fault, we realize that, but still yet, there were difficulties along the way, and things they had to overcome, uh, you know, without a doubt, uh, without God's provision in that journey, would they have made it? No. Same is true in our walk with God. Let's go to Joshua again, chapter 1, the first few verses. Look what it says. Thank you, Dan. The reason I wanted to read that is because we know, uh, again, uh, Joshua chapter 1, verse 1, Moses had died. Moses had been the man for 40 years during this wilderness travel. And now he's gone. And uh, so, therefore, God's people lost all hope. What did God do for them? He gave them a new leader. Moses was gone, no doubt about that. And I have no doubt, if, if I'd have been there, I probably felt the same way. What are we going to do now? You know, for 40 years, he's been our mainstay. He's the one that's kept us where we are, and now he's gone. But God basically says, you know what, don't worry about that. I raised up another man. His name is Joshua. So Moses is gone, and God did not leave his people alone. In the book of John, most of you heard chapter 14, but how many know that before chapter 14 comes chapter 13? And I said that to say this, and I'm just paraphrasing. In chapter 13, Jesus is giving the disciples some of his final words. And he basically says to them, I am going away. And where I'm going, you cannot come now. Now, that didn't sit well with Peter. And, uh, by the way, we started a new study on, in Master's Men Monday night, uh, Peter's epistles. And one of the questions we were asked early on in our study uh, Monday night, uh, what, what kind of man Peter was. And we know Peter wasn't perfect, but he was loyal. He was loyal to the Lord Jesus Christ. And Peter was troubled. He, Lord, if we can't, if you're going away, why can't we go. So for about three, three and a half years, as far as the disciples were concerned, who was their mainstay? Jesus. His physical presence among them. And Peter says, Lord, you mean you're going away? Go to John 14, verse 25 and 26.
Thank you, Phyllis. And I understand because I, I hate a red letter edition Bible. They're harder to read and they give you the wrong indication. This is all God's Word. And whether you, now I've got a red letter edition Bible at home. Uh, and, uh, this one here is that I'm holding in my hand, the one on my computer is. Uh, but nonetheless, Christ says, thank you, Phyllis, for reading that, by the way. Uh, he says, I've told you these things while I'm still with you. Why was that important? You're going away. Yeah. Yeah. He's going away, and he wants them to know, hey, guys, here is what's going to happen. I am going away. Do you think that's what they wanted to hear? Oh, not at all. We wouldn't have wanted that. But he says, when I do, the Comforter, which is the Holy Spirit, whom the Father might send. Oh, thank you, Lavenda. I've got it printed in black, so I can't blame the red letter edition on that. But will send. He will send. In my name. And when he comes, he will teach you all things. And bring all things to your remembrance whatsoever I have said unto you. Being quite a few years ago now, I gave a, uh, a friend of my brother's that my brother grew up with, and we knew him for years. He wanted a garage built. I thought he did. And uh, uh, I'll never forget, because I, I, I knew his wife for many years. She grew up with my brothers as well. And uh, he had two of the meanest little girls I think God ever put on this earth. Now, when I say mean, I mean mischievous. I should say that, okay? And uh, they were at our house maybe 30 minutes, and I wasn't sure we'd have a house left when they left. But at any rate, um, I remember, uh, I mean, I, I, when I give an estimate, I always detail, you'll get this, this, and this, and this, and this. And I always uh, was very adamant in saying to them, look, if it's not on the list, don't expect it, okay? And, of course, we were friends, but that doesn't matter. I still want everything above board. So a few days went by. And uh, I called him, and I called him by name, and of course he knew who I was. And I said, what about all the things I, I shared with you about what we're doing? He said, when I saw that bottom line, I didn't hear another word you said. And the, the problem is, I think when Jesus told them we're going, I'm going away, what do you think the disciples felt? They didn't hear nothing else he said. Because that, say it, Phyllis. They were heartbroken. And also understand, throughout that three and a half years ministry, a lot of the things that he taught them, guess what? Went over their heads. They either misinterpreted a lot of times, struggled with it, because they were human. And, and of course, Christ knows that. And so he says, what you need to remember, when he comes, and by the way, that comforter, uh, Paracleo, when it comes alongside. But it literally means a comforter of the same kind. Was Jesus a comfort to them while he was here? Absolutely. So, again, and you'll see it in other verses of John's Gospel, 
when he says, I'll send you another comforter, it's a comforter of the same kind. Now, and let's, let's make sure we understand this. I, I, my opinion is when Jesus said this to them, it simply didn't make sense. How could it be? How could it be? How could he, how could he replace himself? How could anyone else or anything else provide the comfort that Christ had provided all these years as they walked with him? But have you noticed, and I know you have, as you study the scriptures, the disciples, you know, Peter, when Jesus talked about how he would be betrayed and his disciples would leave him, what did Peter say about that? Not me. But if you read the rest of this verse, all the disciples said that. We won't. But what did he do? They all did. They all did. We hear the story of Peter, but they all did. But after the day of Pentecost, something changed in those men. Those men who were afraid, and by the way, I can only speak for myself. If I'd have been there, I'd have fled. Okay? But after the Spirit of God came, something happened in their lives. There was a boldness and a confidence they never dreamed they could have. Now, we know that Jesus is always writing to God. But was he right when he said that about the Holy Spirit? Absolutely. And so, as we read through the book of Acts, we, we see that the fact that God sent the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. And we read of the enemies the early church had, and they had many of them. And by the way, when you get to Acts chapter 7, uh, when Stephen is stoned after he preached to the, Jew, the uh, Greek-speaking Jews, uh, persecution began to the burner was turned up. And of course, a lot of Jews began, Christian Jews, began to leave Jerusalem. But as they were leaving, what did they, what did they do? They preached the gospel. Now remember, Jesus told them in Acts chapter 1, go into all the world. Jerusalem, Samaria, I'm sorry, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the other most parts of the world. And so early on, they were camping around Jerusalem. How many know God has a way of moving his people? But nonetheless, look at what they overcame through the Holy Spirit. And we know that when Joshua went into the promised land, it wasn't just given to him, handed over on a silver platter. There were battles to fight. He had to defeat Jericho and Ai and well, we know the mistake they made there at Ai, but nonetheless, when the apostles went out to share the gospel, do you think it was a friendly world? Absolutely not. Even their own people hated him because they thought they were betraying their Jewish heritage, if you will. But nonetheless, 
We also know that, we talked about that a week or two ago, that once Joshua died off and uh, those that were with him, it wasn't long uh, that those in the promised land began to turn away from God. Judges, do you look at verse 17? Thank you. And again, I want to focus, Dan, on that last part. It says, they turned how? Quickly. What's that mean? As quick as they could. It wasn't long after uh, Joshua, uh, their fathers had gone out of the way. They turned away from that very, very quickly. Judges 21 verse 25 gives another perspective. Judges twenty one twenty five. What's going on, Alan? Exactly. Now I got to tell you, folks, we need somebody to govern us. They did then, and we do now, and that's why God ordained government. But like you said, Alan, it was a free for all. Do what's right in your own eye. Well, we don't hear that today, do we? <laughs> Might be right for you, right? But not for me. And that was the same thing going on then. Now, I do want to share, while Peter and James and John, even Jude, writing these epistles, uh, Paul the Apostle, while they were here on earth, heresies began to pop up. And, you know, Paul, we live in a world today where people say, well, preacher, don't, don't say that. Just, let's just all get along. Well, if, if, just because they're teaching that, can we just kind of turn our eyes away from that? I was reading this a week or two ago as I was going through my daily Bible reading in Galatians. You know what Paul said to do with those that preach another gospel? Cut them off. Mutilate them. Very strong language. And Paul said it doesn't matter whether it's me or an angel that comes preaching another gospel. Get rid of them. John was dealing with Gnosticism. Uh, Peter talked about these uh, groups that said, well, uh, you can, you're better spiritually if you don't marry, if you don't eat this, you don't go there, and you don't do this, and you, you, you gain a knowledge that only angels have. Now, I forget what Peter called them, but the word was hogwash in the Greek, I think. But he, he said, run from that. Don't get bogged down in things like that. So heresy was already beginning to raise its ugly head. And it's interesting, it's true, even after the death of the apostles, heresy began to corrupt the church. And, you know, Israel, they got tired of 
God being their God, their king, and they said, we want a king like everybody else does. We want to be just like the rest of the world. What's wrong with that? That's right. There's nothing right with it. That's what's wrong with it, okay? There's nothing right with it. And so that's what happened with the New Testament church. Uh, they became, became dissatisfied with the New Testament church form of government. And it wasn't long. Uh, we talked we talk in detail about it last week. I'm not going to go into detail again tonight. Uh, but what happened was uh, they sub- submitted to the domination of a pope. Now, again, that came about a lot because of what Constantine did when he uh, legalized Christianity, for lack of a better word. And even though Constantine professed that he wasn't a true Christian uh, because he mixed uh, Roman paganism with Christianity, and that's what ended up. And again, because uh, in the uh, emperors you were considered a god, uh, he thought the church needed a pope, a vicar of Christ, a vicar of God, the one who had much authority. Uh, a lot of the church was against that. But yet, Rome won out. And of course, that's how uh, that began. And so, the origins of the Catholic Church was a tragic compromise of Christianity because what happened was they mixed a lot of uh, the pagan religions around it with what they taught. So, instead of proclaiming the gospel... And converting the pagans, uh, the Catholic Church did a, did a lot to Christianize the pagan religions, and they paganized Christianity. Now, I mentioned this last week in, in, in closing. Uh, that's one of the reasons uh, the Catholic Church denies the authority of God's Word, because a lot of what they teach is not found in God's Word. So that's why they say the Pope uh, has final authority, not this book, this book was written, just written by men. And I want to tell you, folks, that's heresy. That is heresy. Because if you look at the history of the church, of the Catholic church, it is not pretty. It is not pretty. I mean, they were filled with downright scoundrels. Okay, I'll let that go, all right? And again, what happened, uh, they began to blur the difference. Uh, they erased the distinctions. And again... The Catholic Church made itself attractive to the idolatrous people of the Roman Empire. And that's how they got such a great foothold early on in Christianity. And so the result of that was uh, the Catholic Church became the supreme religion in the Roman world. It had been that way for centuries. But also understand... Another result was uh, the most dominant form of Christianity apostatizing from the true gospel of Jesus Christ and the true proclamation of God's word. Second Timothy chapter four, verse three and four. Now, I know we read a verse like that, and thank you, Brother Dan, for reading that. And we think we apply it to our times, and certainly it applies. But we need to understand what Paul said to Timothy in his letter began to happen shortly after they were gone. 
people begin to apostatize from the faith. So we talked about the time of the judges, and uh, especially during the time of 1 Samuel. Uh, Israel said, we want a king. So what did God do? What did he give them? A, a king, right? So therefore, they got better. <laughs> Not at all. It simply didn't get better. In fact, during the time of the kings, and you know, after Solomon, the kingdom was divided to the northern kingdom and to the southern kingdom. And the northern kingdom was primarily known as Israel, the southern kingdom primarily known as Judah. But these kings became more corrupt, more and more corrupt, until God said, I've had enough. After years of warning, after years of sending prophets to get them to repent, God said, enough is enough. So what did God do? He sent them in to bondage. Now we look at the history of the church. Once the papal see was established, there was a long period that followed known as the Dark Ages. And during that time of the Dark Ages, Europe was subjected to spiritual bondage. And during that time, and I'm talking literally here, they would take the Word of God and they would bind it with chains. They didn't want regular men and women to read it. wonder why. They don't want to hear the truth. Absolutely. You don't need to read this, but just hear what I tell you. I'll read it. I'll tell you what's in there, okay? And so it was, at, it was literally chained to pulpits. Kept them under their thumb. Thank you, Phyllis. How many know that God has always had a plan? In the days of the Babylonian captivity, <laughs> they were in captivity 70 years, 70 years up there about. Isaiah, 150 years before they were let go, God said, I'm going to raise up a man by the name of Cyrus. Who but God could say that? And guess who God raised up? Cyrus. And he was the one who made the decree to let the people go back home. But also, God also raised up Ezra and Nehemiah. Two very godly men who in indirectly and directly recovered the word of God. And and they used it to lead them out of their captivity, a remnant of the people. 
And in chapter 8, they read the Word of God from about 8 o'clock in the morning till noon. And the people rejoiced. They were glad to hear the Word of God. But their hearts were broken because they realized how they had sinned against God. And God said, Ezra, you tell them, don't weep. This is a day of joy, a day of rejoicing. Why? Because you come back again and you're my people. And I'm redeeming you, bringing you out. For a lot of years, the papacy kept people under the thumb. Spiritual bondage. No access to the Word of God. Until the 16th century A.D. And God raised up a man named Martin Luther. And as Martin Luther began to read his Bible, he realized what we've been teaching is wrong. Horribly wrong. So he raised up Luther and other contemporaries and God brought about the great reformation of Protestantism. God was on the move. Back to the story of Israel. Just after the days of Ezra and Nehemiah, the Jews who had come home began again in spiritual decline. The sad thing was it happened before Ezra and Nehemiah had left the scene. And they began to weep and he broke of what the people were doing. And they became so angry with the Jews that they even began to pluck their beard out. You need to repent. And so a day of fasting and repentance was called for, and it worked for a while. But not long. They'd been in captivity. God had brought them out, raised up two godly men, and contemporary to Ezra and Nehemiah as well during that time. But the time to get the book of Malachi, God asked the Jews about seven questions. Will a man rob God? And six others. That's the one I remember the most. I don't know why. So it began to get worse and worse and worse. And I'm not sure when it happened. But after a while, they begin to lapse into the ritualism of the Pharisees. And the nationalism, the rationalism of the Sadducees. And when Christ came, he came to deliver his people from that. But the sad thing, history repeats itself. 
And I hope I'm wrong by what I say tonight. But I don't think I am. I do know that since the Reformation, Christianity has moved in the direction of apostasy. Churches who used to preach the word no longer preach the word. They'd rather entertain than instruct. And I want to tell you, folks, it's only going to get worse. Because our people in our world today was true in Paul's day, is true in ours. They have itching ears. Isn't that true? And if you have itching ears, what do you want? You what? Yeah, what you want. You want somebody to scratch your itch. Take care of your itch. And I'm going to tell you right now, it's only going to get better when Jesus comes. That's it. When Jesus comes. So if we look at the Old Testament, you can't help but see how wonderful, how accurately the history of the Old Testament runs parallel with the anticipated history of the New Testament, of the church. And we still see it going on today even in the Christian world, or the so-called Christian world that we live in. I don't know who said this, but somebody once said this. Coming events cast their shadows before them. Good words. But also understand this. No matter how bad it gets, our God is still in control. He hasn't forgotten. He hasn't lost his grip. And the one who knows the end from the beginning still upholds all things by the word of his power. He is still in charge. But that very God is the only one who could have caused the shadow of the Old Testament to have taken the shape that it did and give us, if you will, one long parable of what was going to take place thousands of years later. How many would agree man couldn't write a book like that? Man couldn't put it together like that for it to come out like it did and to happen like it did. But here's what's interesting. We've been kind of talking about the broad outlines of the Old Testament history and their typical meaning. But there are so many things in the Old Testament that has great spiritual 
battle. Now, do you remember when the Jews first left Egypt? What was the first battle they fought? Anybody remember that? Yeah, you got that. But what? Yeah, the Amalekites. And Diane, we talked about the other night. What, what happened? And what did what did Moses need? What did Moses need? Yeah. I, I I don't get it. It's not hard to hold my hands up, but not for long, right? Yes, indeed. But that was a battle. And just about right out of the gate, they faced that battle. And through their history, there were changes in government, changes in kings, a lot of elaborate ceremonies. And all the biographies we read about in the Bible, they're all designed to instruct us and to edify us. And Paul says that in Romans, by the way. Every one of them. I remember back in the days, even in grade school, we'd have to write an essay. I hated that. And and no, take, don't take offense, Diane. You, I know you were a teacher, but anyway, uh, a lot of times there had to be so many pages. A, a buddy of mine taught me a good lesson. He said, if you write the words big enough, you can get two words every line. Or you begin to ask that, whatever, just to fill in, right? There's nothing in the Bible that is not essential. Every word it's important. And from the beginning to the end, Jesus said, they are they which testify of me. There are some inanimate objects. We talked a little bit about the ark. And certainly the ark uh, represents the security we have in Christ. Uh, security from the storms of divine wrath. Genesis 7, verse 15 and 16. Okay, thank you, Dan. So they get in the ark. Who shut the door? How's that important? Say it again. No one else but God could. And by the way, once that door was shut, what does that mean? You can't go in. It was the only place of safety. John fourteen six. What what does that mean, Phyllis? Just one way. Now, I want to remind you, that 
the fact that Christ is the only way, Christ is the truth and the life, that was not man's idea. That wasn't, that didn't, wasn't conjured up by some creed, a group of holy men gathering together. Jesus said that. So, in Noah's day, the ark was a place of security from the storm of God's wrath. Now, Jesus is that ark. But also, the manna that God provided in the wilderness. Exodus 16, verse 15. Thank you, Dan. Now, again, uh, when the uh, uh, before this particular day, uh, before that, when was the last time the Jews saw manna? Now, this is in the wilderness now, but when here we read that they saw it, they didn't know what it was. Why didn't they know what it was? They'd never seen it before. And so Moses tells him plainly, this is the bread that God has given you to eat. <coughs> so much implication there. So if it's bread that God gives you, what can you count on? Ah, say it again, Dan. It's good stuff. It will sustain you. Okay? But in John 6, Jesus is teaching Look at verse 32 through 35. John chapter 6. Yeah, to 35, I'm sorry. Thank you, Phyllis. Let me backtrack just a moment here. Dan, you read a moment ago when the Jews, the Israelites, didn't know what it was. Uh, Moses, hey, this is a bread which God has given you. Not me, not Moses, but who? God, this is the bread from God. So here in John, chapter 6, and by the way, I just put it in the context, just previous to this, he had fed the 5,000. And they had, uh, I don't know if they had peanut butter and jelly breads. I don't know what they had. They had bread and fish, right? And uh, what do you think they wanted more of? More of the bread and fish. And Jesus began to talk about spiritual things. He's speaking primarily to the Jews, and so you knew they would understand. He said, you know, if you look back and read, that it wasn't Moses that gave you that bread, it was who? It was God. He said, but I want you to realize, and by the way, does anybody remember, this is kind of a trivia question, when the manna stopped? 
when they first ate in the promised land. That was it. No more manna. So that manna was temporary. So Jesus says, God is giving you the true bread from heaven. And he said, the bread of God is the one who comes down from heaven. And he gives life to the world. And what do they say? Give us this bread evermore. If we back up two chapters to John 4, Jesus told the woman at the well, if you ask me for a drink, I'll give you water where you won't ever thirst again. What'd she say? Give me that water. I'm not come back, yeah. And now they're singing about the bread. Give us this bread. But again, Jesus knew what they were expecting, but he kind of throws a monkey wrench in that. He says, I am the bread of life. I am the bread of life. Come to me and you will never hunger. And if you believe on me, you will never, ever thirst. Is that what they wanted to hear? No. They wanted loaves of bread. The woman at the well wanted buckets of water. But Jesus said, I've got something that will last for eternity. I am the bread and the water of life. So the bread in the Old Testament typified Jesus Christ, the true bread, which God would send into the world. And then when you get to Numbers chapter 21, And I've often said, I know they're Israelites, but I wonder if they weren't really free will Baptists because they always murmured and complained. And again, we would have done the same thing. I mean, they had manna for breakfast, manna for lunch, manna for supper. Uh, they baked it, they boiled it, they fried it. I don't know if they barbecued it or not. They had it every way they could. And what happened? Say it again. I got sick of it. We want meat. Now remember, we're talking probably at least 3 million, if not 6 million Jews. Now, in, in, we live near a million. They have a, a, one of them super Kroger's, but they don't have enough meat in there for that many people. So God sends quail. And they really ate until they got sick. They gorge themselves. But God wasn't pleased with their complaining and murmuring. So he sent poisonous snakes among the Israelites. And guess what happened when he got bit? He died. Verse 9, number 21. Somebody got that one to read it?
What happened? Did it work? Absolutely it worked. Absolutely. If God says it worked, it'll work. Now here's the thing, folks. And by the way, that's where the medical community today gets their symbol, the serpent around that rod. So I have to ask a question of, was there really a brass serpent made? Sure there was. Were there really poisonous snakes? Sure there was. Did some people really die from their bite? Sure they did. Actual event. Great story. True story. But isn't it interesting how the Old Testament adds to that? It wasn't just about snake bites. It wasn't just about a brass serpent. Now, by the way, um, I'm trying to think here. Remember, uh, Josiah, one of the youngest kings of Judah, he took that brass serpent and he crushed it up and burned it. And he called it the hushed hand. He said it's simply a piece of brass. Ooh, guess what happened there? That made a lot of Jews mad. It it became an idol to them. But nonetheless, it was just a piece of brass when God was finished with it. Now go to John chapter 3, verse 14 and 15. Wow. Jesus gives an example here. Speaking to Nicodemus. And Nicodemus knew the story. He knew that Moses had a brass serpent fashioned. And that brass serpent was put on a pole and raised up. Now remember, Nicodemus was a Pharisee. You think he knew that story? You know he did. True story. Actual event. But Jesus said, in that same manner, I must be lifted up. And the promise in verse 15, that whosoever, do I have any whosoever here tonight? Believes in him would not perish, but have eternal Life. So was the brass serpent just about a brass serpent? No. What did it, what did it typify? Jesus Christ. Now, by the way, as a young Christian, there was a time I thought Jesus meant, well, if I just go around telling people how good Jesus is and lift him up in front of them, that's what he, no, that's not what he's talking about here. He's talking about being crucified. The only way he could save us from our sins was crucifixion. He had to die for our sins. So the uplifting of the serpent on the pole foreshadowed the coming of a Redeemer. Thank God for Jesus Christ. Any question about that? Any comment? Say what? Oh, yeah, absolutely. 
Absolutely, yes, indeed. So we have inanimate objects like the ark and the brazen serpent. And then we talked about the Passover language to Exodus 12, verse 13. Thank you, Dan. John one twenty nine. Amen. Exodus chapter twelve, Passover Lamb. And John one, chapter twenty nine, or verse twenty nine, John is looking, he sees Jesus coming, and he says, Look. Behold the Lamb of God. Do you think the Jews would know what he's talking about when he said Lamb of God? Sure they would. Not mean they would trust Christ as that, but he said the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. So the Passover Lamb signifies Christ. And we're not going to take time to look at the bullocks, the goats, the rams. Uh, did you realize that if you couldn't afford to bring a bullock or a goat or a ram, you could bring two pigeons or a turtle 